All right, we are live. Welcome to an episode of Roasting Marshmallows. My name is Rolf Sud and I'm your host. Uh, so today we have a very special guest on the, the show today. We are around the campfire sitting here with uh, Alan Holub. Um, Alan Holub. Uh, do I pronounce your name correctly, by the way? It's is close. It Holub or Holub? Close. It's Holub. All right. Yeah. Holub. Yeah. All right. Very sorry. So, yeah, we're roasting some marshmallows here with Alan Holub. And uh, Alan is an internationally recognized software architect and agile consultant. He speaks all over the planet about those uh, topics and agile-friendly implementation technology like microservices and incremental architecture. Uh, his bread and butter, though, is uh, in-house training and consulting in how to create highly functional, lean, agile organizations and how to design and build robust, highly scalable software architectures suitable for agile environments. Uh, yeah, Very he started. Yeah, sorry. His... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's okay. We're almost we're almost through. <laughs> so. Alan started his career as a hardware engineer, but after being pressed into building a compiler and operating system for a robotics application, he ended up a developer. Uh, he's helped with many commercial applications, web-based and otherwise, and he has served twice as a CTO for early stage startups. So welcome, Alan. Hello. Hey, so you're uh, calling in from uh, California. From California, right? from Berkeley, California, which is right across the yeah. from San Francisco. All right. So that's the Silicon Valley. That's the Silicon Valley sort of is that the, yeah. it's the Silicon Valley area, but the Valley is its own thing. People, people who live up here in Berkeley do not consider themselves to be in the Silicon Valley. Oh, okay. Why not? Um, that's a really good question. I, I think part of it is the university though, you know, the Valley has okay. its own university. It's got Stanford and, yeah. um, but uh, part of it is just that the culture is different. The culture down in the Valley is, is, um, well, it's what it is, right? Is it, if you've yeah. seen the Silicon yeah. Valley TV show, you know what the culture in the Valley is like. It's pretty accurate. And okay. things are different up here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. And uh, yeah, we got uh, some other guests on the show today. Let me first introduce those two before we uh, get to the meat and potatoes. Uh, so yeah, we got uh, Sylvester van der Bell up in here as well. Welcome, Sylvester. Thanks, man. Looking so forward I, to I this read conversation. The yeah, I read that your wife might uh, might leave during the the recording, and that you're going to be home alone with the kids. So, yeah, so, uh, so it's going to be interesting. I have three kids, just uh, to give you uh, three small kids, and my wife is going uh, well out. So it's uh, I think I'll survive, and I hope they will as well. But uh, yeah, work takes uh, priority, right? In case of a fire alarm, you might uh, drop the connection. I hope my headphones the, the, let the sound through. Yeah, we'll All see. Right, yeah, cool. And uh, of course, we got Enhik on the show as well. Welcome. Yeah, thanks. And I'm looking forward for this conversation. And I hope I'm going to disagree with Alan as much as I see people disagree with him on Twitter today. So <laughs> let's see. <laughs> okay, cool. So you're home alone, yeah. I see. Peace and quiet. So, uh, all right. Yeah, nice. Cool. All right. So, uh, so Alan, you've uh, you've made a list that uh, that's called the heuristics for effective software uh, development. Uh, although the software development is crossed out nowadays, and it's called the uh, heuristic for effective organizations. And, uh, you know, it's a, well, not a super long list, but it has a couple of points in there. But uh, the, the, the thing that uh, st struck me the most with it is that because, you know, it's the title says software development, but there is like almost no technical stuff in the list, right? It's all people. Yeah, and... which is why I crossed it out. So I was looking at yeah. it, there was only one thing that mentioned the word code. And I thought about yeah. that for a moment and thought, you know, I can remove the word code from this, <laughs> this one item. And <laughs> so let's, let's make it more general because, you know, I, the interesting thing about it is that the list um, started out being a recap of the Agile Manifesto. 
And okay. the, mm. the problem with the Agile Manifesto is that it's, it is nicely concise from my point of view, but mm -hmm. from others, other points of view, it was too terse as people just didn't understand it. They, they, you know, things, things were said with very few words and people gave the wrong interpretation to them, at least wrong in my, my mind. So yeah. I thought I would make it a little bit bigger, right? Not a lot, yeah. but a big, bigger enough that you could sort of understand the intent that underlies some of the thinking. Yeah. And so could you give an, an example of like some of these wrong interpretations that you, that you mentioned? Oh, there are a million wrong interpretations. <laughs> <laughs> Best stories. That's what we're looking for. Well, it's not so much wrong interpretations as it's people ignoring things entirely because it's not there's not enough emphasis. You know, we could right. start off with with uh, the, uh, people and interactions over processes and tools, and yeah. you know, you look at what agile has become this monstrous piece of garbage that it has become, and it's become entirely about processes and tools. Yeah. And the whole yeah. the whole individuals and interactions part it's just it's just, right and i i don't like that so i wanted to kind of rewrite things like that so that it would be harder for people to ignore the things that they found convenient to ignore and yeah. right and the the fact that it's not really about processes and tools kind of informs the rest of the list because the rest of the list isn't talking about process at all and it's mm -hmm. certainly not talking about tools it's the the it's talking about the sort of human things that underlie being successful in an agile organization. And, you know, you can, the tools are ever, kind of irrelevant. I, I, I was just talking about Scrum um, on Twitter and I yeah. was, I came, I came across the way of the, a way of describing, which I think is correct. I'm going to stick with this for a while is that in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, when, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> when you look up the entry for the word earth, it was originally the single word harmless and then ford prefect decided he was going to edit the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and after a great deal of work he changed the entry for the entire planet of earth to mostly harmless and i think scrum is mostly harmless is the the <laughs> it's the, yeah. it's it doesn't do active damage at least not if it's done right but it doesn't help any either and yeah. the um so it's the best you can help hope for with some of these agile, so-called agile processes. I'm sure it doesn't do active damage. I have experienced, I think, a few companies that I think they got more damage with the idea of using Scrum. Than well, you know, I think I think that the, the companies that are damaged by Scrum are the companies that aren't actually doing Scrum as it's described in the Scrum Guide. The Scrum in the Scrum Guide is not very much. It's not much, right? It's pretty lightweight. No. And, the, you know, you've got a PO and a, well, we can go through the scrum guide and I can talk about everything I hate about it, but the, you know, it's, it's sprints and SMs and POs and um, yeah. a few meetings that you have to have on a regular schedule. And that's pretty much it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And though none of those things are particularly good, I think that most of them fall into the waste category in the, by lean thinking, they don't do active yeah. harm. And the, the, so if some, Scrum was originally positioned as a wrapper around extreme programming that made it acceptable for businesses. And, right. you know, that's not a bad thing, I guess. You know, if, if the only way you can get more agility in the business is to put a wrapper like Scrum around it, well, okay, fine. Is that the, the business could do better without the wrapper, but it's not going to hurt them. Yeah. Um, yeah. When, when it hurts is when they start taking Scrum and turning it into like a thin layer around what they're doing now. Yeah, I you know, think there's also right, a great example of that is if there's a team level uh, the project manager, 
Right? First of all, there are no projects in Scrum. And secondly, there are no project yeah. managers in Scrum. And that's not an accident, right? It's part of the framework. Yeah. yeah. And for, uh, uh, you know things are screwed up if you go into a company and every team has a project manager on it. Because that means they haven't even read the basics. They don't have, they're not doing Scrum, really. They're doing something else that they've made up. And that may or may not work. Usually it doesn't. You know, if you make up yeah. stuff without understanding what you're making up, it doesn't hardly ever work. So I don't know what but, they're going to accomplish. But but one of the things about Scrum that I also uh, happened to read on your Twitter feed is that the the concept of a sprint yeah. is something that you that you don't want to be doing all the time because if you're if you're going to be sprinting for a year, you're going to be you know dead. <laughs> well, one sprint, right? A real sprint, right? Run, yeah. Running full out is at the end of the sprint. They they collapse yeah. right over the the finish line exactly. because they're so exhausted. Right? <laughs> Every ounce of energy they have is going into going faster. Um, yeah. There's a lot wrong with that, right? Agile has nothing to do with going faster. I, it's something yeah. that I've, Sutherland has like gone off the deep end. I don't know what's wrong with Jeff Sutherland, but <laughs> um, starting with that half the, twice the work and half the time garbage, I don't know what that's about, but it's not about Agile. It's that the, yeah. the um, you, know, you can produce twice as much garbage in half the time, but what have you accomplished? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, I, it's not it's not about speed. Sprints are all about speed, right? The concept of sprints yeah. is all about speed. So that's that's a problem. And time boxes, I don't see what value we have in a time box particularly, is just make your stories small and work on small stories. If if you're so mm -hmm. undisciplined that you can't make a story that takes less than two weeks to implement, then work on that. Don't, don't put this sprint thing around you. And there's all this time wasted doing things like pulling stuff into the sprint, trying to size things so you can pull the right number of stories into the sprint. What's that? Why? <laughs> right? If everything's small, why? Yeah. What have we accomplished by doing that? Right? And the, the, well, then the guess, training guess... wheels argument comes up, right? Yeah, it's exactly. like training wheels. And I, nobody has ever learned to ride a bicycle until the training wheels have been removed. Right? If you have training wheels on, you don't have a bicycle anymore. You've got something else with four wheels. Yeah. Right? Awesome. And, uh, the, um, so you don't learn anything. Sprint, sprint doesn't teach you anything. It's, or not, yeah. Scrum doesn't teach you anything. I just don't. I don't see it. I don't. I don't understand what they're. Yeah. Yeah. I did have a colleague that he was very much into sprints, and uh, he was basically his argument was like, I like this idea of having this window that I can focus without interruption. And his, uh, let's say, understanding of Scrum was like, yeah, for two, three, or four weeks, depending on the level of this his sprint, he knew he would not be interrupted, and he could just put his head down. And implement whatever they had agreed and he was happy with that fixed there's so much wrong with that that i don't even know where to start <laughs> right is the the we can start with this notion of the isolated individual model of working where yeah. one person wants to like put their head down and work in a cave right let's go i gotta go work in this room and have somebody throw meat under the door once a day and I'll, i'm happy and i software doesn't software development doesn't work like that anymore you know, is that software no. development is a team sport. It's something that you do collaboratively. So this notion of I can keep my head down and focus and nobody will bother me, that's a huge amount of dysfunction in that. Yeah. Um, for one thing, that means that you're not leveraging the rest of the team. So the best work you could possibly do is the work you know how to do as compared to the yeah. best work the team can do, which will be much better. Um, you waste a huge amount of time looking up stuff that you don't know where somebody else in the team might know it. You don't get the feedback that you need often enough because you consider that to be a distraction. You, there's lots wrong there. I just but really I, hate that way of yeah, working. And I, you know, think... one of the things about that I say about remote that I hate is the people who want to work like that 
say, I love remote because I can work like that. And I'm going, man, there's lots of reasons to work remote, but that's not one of them. It's the, 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 you know, you can mob program remotely just fine. You look at Hunter, they've been doing it for the last 18 months and it's not an issue for them. But um, to use it as an excuse to never talk to another human being, I don't buy that at all. I'm sorry. And the, the same with the sprint, right? Is that the, the, um, why is that such an important thing that you need to time box it? Right. In other words, I don't, I don't really understand. If you want to work alone? Okay. But how does a sprint help with that? I, maybe I'll ask you as, I don't know. It's the, the. Yeah. I think it's the idea that let's say you have a edge toy, right? Let's not even go with as big as more, whatever, but any time box it that you're going to work with that for three days. I agree that you don't per se need the notion of a sprint to decide it yourself, but I guess the sprint makes that, uh, uh, Oh my God, I see myself depending. Yeah, I'm waiting for this explanation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I cannot find the reason. That's the whole truth. But I can yeah, imagine the reason. <laughs> Why put a deadline in place when you don't need a deadline? No, I agree. Right, if the story is going to take a couple of days to build, that's fine. If it's going to take a whole sprint, two weeks, then your story is way too big. So that's a problem. Make yeah. it smaller. Yeah. Right? Is that if, if, if you have this deadline, and you get close to the deadline and you start cutting corners and stuff, what's that achieved? Yeah. You know, there's no goodness there at all. I just don't see no. it. I don't see anything good coming out of it. No. You know, well, I'm going to help out on you here. Maybe I could imagine that some teams not practicing Agile at all could actually say, hey, now we have two-week release cycles maybe, right? Because at the end of the sprint, they're doing a demo and then I'm hoping they're going to deliver something to production. Maybe that would help them in making things at least a bit smaller. Well, no? maybe, but I, you know, there again, a lot of dysfunction in that statement also, you know, mm -hmm. we could start with the notion of a, of a sprint being a, re a release cycle. It's not. Um, sprints are review cycles. They're not release cycles, right? They're evaluation cycles. And the best scrum teams are releasing every day or two is they're not waiting. They're not, there's no reason to hold on to stuff until the end of the sprint before you release it. Um, yeah. The point of releasing is to get feedback. And if you, if you don't release something, you are delaying the feedback, which means that if you have to change something, it's going to be much harder to change than it would have been if you had released it often. So there's nothing in scrum that prevents that though. It's the, 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 so looking at it as a release release cycle is another anti-pattern, I think. And then there's that the notion of a demo. I don't believe in demos. I think demos are a huge waste of time, right? With an engineer sitting in front of a computer droning on about this feature and that feature and the other. You look, you look in demos like that. Most of the demos that I've sat in like that, half the people in the room don't want to be there. Right? No. They've got their they've got their laptops open and they're working on their email. And they're not paying any attention. Right? What mm -hmm. have we accomplished? And that what you want to do is you want, if you're going to have a quote demo, if you're going to have some kind of review of the work, you want to sit your customer in front of the computer, not you, right? You want the developers yeah. standing around watching the customers working and asking the customers questions, right? The customer asks them a question, that's a defect, is the because the, it means that your UI wasn't intuitive enough. But um, you could be asking them questions. What are you doing there? Why, why are you doing that? That no. looks hard. How could we make that easier? Right? There's lots of questions you could ask, but that's not a that's not a passive demo where some engineer stands up in front of the a bunch of quote stakeholders and then and then shows them only those parts of the program that they think work. Yeah, because they have tried. What, what, what have we accomplished with that? I don't see any value. Well, like uh, uh, okay. I can imagine that for you at some point in time, 
you are one of those, right? Like you set your head on the, the keyboard and you wanted to develop most of the functionality and then eventually you know, like, oh, this doesn't work. Like, do you remember that date for you? Like, oh, yeah. long ago, yeah. Um, the, I was fortunate in that I was working in companies where we were effectively doing something that was very Agile-like before the word Agile existed. And, um, you know, we didn't have strong hierarchies. We worked collaboratively. We weren't mob programming, but we were talking to each other all the time. And um, there was a lot of, come over here, take a look at this, tell me what you think, stuff going on. Um, interestingly, none of the companies that I worked for before I went off to be a consultant had strong management at the team level. Um, the, the, the early companies, in fact, had no team level project managers at all. Um, and that was, that was good, right? But it, it's one of the reasons I don't think they're necessary now because I've experienced not having them in that yeah. context was simply not a problem. Um, yeah. the, the, um, the, they were built on trust. These organizations is the programmers were just trusted to do what they needed to do. And I would, you know, that the bio that you read, right, where I was tasked to write a compiler and an operating system. Yeah. I was just green out of school at that point. They had no business trusting me to write that, except they did, right? And I learned a lot and I made some mistakes. I still am embarrassed by the file system that I wrote for that operating system. <laughs> Given a choice, I would have done it completely differently knowing what I know now. But um, there was still a lot of trust in that environment, even for the, the junior guy that had just graduated. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it's all very, it was all very, very agile thinking. So when agile came along, I was, I was open to the vast majority of it. At the time, like everybody else, I was kind of hooked into the whole um, CMMI capable, capability maturity model thing. So I was dubious about giving up the upfront design. Yeah. Right? But all the yeah. human parts of agility, I had no problem with that at all. So that's the way I, I thought things should work. So it took me a year or so to, to wean myself from doing upfront design and Mostly that was figuring out ways to do designs incrementally that weren't, that weren't bad, that weren't awful, right? It's, it had to do with sort of learning how to come up with an architecture that could grow. Yeah. And um, I hadn't had to learn how to do that, or nobody knew how to do that really at that point. So there was a lot to figure out in order to make it work. And um, so there was just a practical concern that none of us knew how to do architecture in a way that would support agile ways of working. But, um, you know, that's a problem that can be surmounted. Well, it has been surmounted as we've under, we understand yeah. now. And uh, it's, can, it's nice that you, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, uh, Sebastian. I'm just wondering, right? Just now you also uh, said, Paul, uh, agile is kind of like that, right? Uh, it became some kind of non-trustity. Yeah. Um, but to me, agile still is something different than scrum, right? Everywhere I go and people say, oh, we're doing agile. They actually mean scrum. So what happened there? What, what happened to agile? I think you're in the best position um, to give kind of like your the agile agile. industrial complex to <laughs> borrow Martin Fowler's term, right? Is that the, you look at, you look at, I think that, I think there's been a vast amount of damage by the scrum certificate mills is that what okay. they're doing is anything they can to make money. As far as I'm concerned, what's happening at places like scrum Inc and, and scrum Alliance is, is unethical. And what they're doing is twisting around the notions of agile so that they can profit from it. And they have convinced people that these ridiculous certificates, right, you take a two-day mm -hmm. class or not even that, right? You don't even have to do that. Yeah. And they give you a certificate, this snake oil, right? Is that that's not anything reasonable. But they then sold it to their clients who are large corporations who don't have a clue what Agile actually is. 
but those corporations are saying, well, these guys are issuing a certificate. It must mean something. And they, the, um, what's happened then is that these uneducated, incompetent people that have certificates are brought in at, to companies as the experts. And they mm-hmm. make up God yeah. knows what garbage. Yeah. Right. And the, often they're junior people and they're pushed around by the existing company and its culture into accepting the things that the company does that's not agile and so on and so forth. So it's, I don't buy any of that. Is that it, it just, I think it's actively, actively destructive. Um, of the certificating organizations, the only one that I have any respect for at all is scrum.org because they don't require huge amounts of money to get the cert, right? Is that you can, you can just read a bunch of books and you can pay them $150, which is, you know, it's not nothing, but it's not yeah. much. And, and get your certificate. And, you know, in truth to tell, you can get that certificate just fine by reading the books they recommend and looking at the scrum guide the day before so that it's fresh in your head. And then you take the test. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I took one of their sample tests the other day. I do this periodically. Did you pass? Kind of remind my, oh, yes, I passed. I got 100%. <laughs> um, it took me 10 minutes of, and I think they allocated 30, right? This is not a hard test. And mm-hmm. all that it was doing was, seeing if you could read the scrum guide there was nothing there, was, there were no trick questions yeah. there was nothing you know there was things in there that i could argue with them about but those arguments tend to be well you know this isn't really agile and they say but it's scrum and i go oh, okay right and that, the, the, those yeah. are the things that i would argue about but the the um it's not that hard but the yeah. point is is that you can't do that with any of the other ones you look at you look at the, the scrum alliance and they even want you to renew the certificate every few years it's just a it's just a way to, to because scrum changes every uh, well every six months no uh, every couple of years but uh, okay. but there's still it's just a way of separating people from their money and so there's no value being yeah. added here yeah and I, that's kind I, of huge I will admit. damage so you know what we have here is what often happens in big corporations if you look at the lean movement and uh, you go all the way back to Deming and his total quality management and, uh, and um, you know, the, the Six Sigma, right? Companies adopt these things thinking they're silver bullets. They don't really learn what they mean. They implement mm-hmm. them badly and they don't work because they're implemented so badly. And then a few years later, they say, oh, that didn't work. And they throw it out. And that's what's going to happen with Agile yeah. in most of these companies. Yeah, and I think, think uh, oh, this doesn't work and they're going to throw it out. Do something, do whatever the next fad is. Because uh, um, it is also the part that you mentioned about the harm that Scrum does. And I guess you experience the same as we do in this regard. Like every time we go to a customer to help them, we also have to first fa- face the first line of defense, right? It's Scrum Master who are certified. And as you said, most of them are juniors. They actually never yeah. in the Scrum team themselves. And then they are preaching with Scrum where you try to basically explain to them, hey, there's something beyond that that you are actually overseeing. And I found this yeah, actually you have to un- They have to well. unlearn. Yeah, they have to much. unlearn. They can learn, yeah. You know, and that's a it's a problem. I, it's a struggle. Of course, if we didn't have to do that, we'd all be out of work. At least I would be. But it's still a it's still unfortunate that it's happening. Yeah. To the point, you'll <laughs> notice that the word agile does not appear anywhere in my heuristics. Nowhere, hmm. not even in the okay. title, and that's quite so have to ask. quite deliberate. Agility appears here and there, but the word agile does not appear. Yeah, because I guess it's not a goal in itself, right? Like goal it's... a company's goal should not be to become agile. Yeah. It's to probably have the best product possible. Right. You're you're go- exactly exactly right. Right. The goal is to have the best yeah. product or the happiest customers. And yeah. you uh, agility is maybe a reasonable goal if you have a market that requires it. But agile, mm-hmm. you know, our goal is to become agile. I don't even know what that means anymore. Yeah. Right. Is that it's it's a it's not a it's not a but, goal. 
but I can imagine you get that question a lot from, from potential clients that say like, hey, we need you to help us become agile. Or is not is that not how it works? Uh, well, I explained to them what I just said. Yeah. You yeah. know, is that the the more often than not when somebody contacts me, it's because things aren't working. It's rare that yeah. I'll get contacted by somebody that's not doing anything and they say, We've heard about this agile thing, make this agile. I would I would I'd love to have a call, client like that, right? Because I would be <laughs> able to get them started on the right foot. Yeah. But yeah. usually what it is is they say we've been doing this scrum thing and it's garbage. It's not working. How is it? How do we fix it? Mm-hmm. Right? The obvious things that are here are obviously wrong. How do we fix them? And the yeah. the I but I don't when I work as a consultant, I don't like to say I'm going to make you more agile. I say, "Okay, what problems are you having? What are your business problems?" Yeah. And let's work on those. Right? And I'll, I'll be applying sort of agile lean thinking to solving those problems, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm the goal is to solve the business problem, not to be agile, whatever that means. Yeah, exactly. So, and often those business problems are the wrong problems too. Yeah. Really. They'll cast it as we have to get stuff out the door faster. Yeah. And I'm more uh, features, more features, right? More, more, features, more, mm-hmm. more features faster. And yeah. the, of course I'll correct them almost immediately and say, no, you don't is what you need to do is get something valuable into your customer's hands, something that they're going to buy. Yeah. Right. And then there's also the difference between faster and sooner, right? Is that you don't, you don't need to work faster. You need to get useful things into people's hands sooner, which means that you would need to work smaller, not faster. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But the speed agile is no faster, faster than any other way of working. It's Can uh, even slower. Well, it's, it's faster only in the sense that you won't be wasting time working on stuff that you shouldn't be wasting time working on. It's the, in other words, if you're, if you're very careful about sorting your stories, and if the stories are really small so that they don't have a lot of junk buried in them, then um, um, you don't work on that stuff, right? If you start off with a big story, it's hiding all this little junk. Right? There's mm-hmm. all these little things yeah. that are not really important to anybody. So if you learn how to make your stories smaller, you can sort out all that junk and get rid of it and not spend time building it, which is great. Right? So it's, fast, it's faster that way, but it's only faster because you're doing less. It's not, it's not yeah. like you were inherently working any faster. So if I think about the, this other part that you just said, right, you go fast because you're doing less. Are you one of those that believe that an organization can grow without per se having to grow the number of developers? Because I see quite a trend now, organizations are trying to grow and they're like, oh, they're hiring 600 developers, they're hiring like 700 developers. I, you know, when I, I see a company with 600 developers, <clears throat> I have no idea what all those people are doing. It just seems really odd to me. I don't understand it. I uh, the, you know, the, there is the problem that the num the the rate of productivity, whatever that is, we can try and discuss what productivity is. Also, I have no idea what that is. But if if you have some loose measure of productivity, it's not mm-hmm. a linear mapping with the number of programmers you have. Right, the number of programmers goes up, and your productivity kind of goes like that. Yeah. There's a point yeah. at which you're adding, and there's a point at which you start adding programmers, and the productivity goes down. And exactly. That's because there of a communication issues uh, surrounding working, and so adding people never makes you more productive. Um, if you have, if you, two people will not work at twice the speed of one person, right? The the one person mm-hmm. will take twice as long to produce something, but two people will be able to produce it in say one point. Uh, 
ain't the time, right? Is that they're not, in other words, they're not, it's not, um, they're not, two people are not twice as fast. They are faster, but they're not twice as fast. Yeah. And three people are yeah. faster again, but they're not three times as fast. And every, every time you add a person, the amount of extra fast you add <laughs> is smaller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have to learn to work small is that where Agile excels is in working small. So you have small, small units of work and small teams, five, six people, maybe. And then it becomes a matter of how well the teams can coordinate with each other. And there's kind of a hard limit there also. I find that you get above six, eight teams and you start having communication problems between the teams. So that's kind of a practical limit. And adding yeah. people beyond that, I don't know what advise you. Is that what, what that tells me is that the product that they're working on is designed badly. It's too big. And it's it's better to have a small set of cooperating products than it is to have one giant one that a massive number of people have to work on. But, you know, I look at these big projects and I'm occasionally brought into them. And the vast majority of people are there because the code is so bad that it's very inefficient to work on it. Mm-hmm. Right. If you have a giant, you know, million line monolith with just complete, you know, garbage spaghetti code, yeah. um, you work very, very slowly because you're afraid to touch anything. So you yeah. might have to have 10 people working at one tenth the speed that one person could work at because the architecture is slowing them down. That's one yeah. aspect. The other will be that you can no longer talk to directly to the customers, for instance, or the users. Right. That's I think that will be very demotivating. Well, and you yeah. can't get the feedback that you need to make it right. So, yeah. yeah. And the, the so all these big companies are kind of self-defeating is that the, the I you know, it's almost a, a um, what's the word? My mind goes completely blank here. Self-fulfilling prophecy. That a, a startup, a scrappy startup can come along and blow a giant corporation out of the water. Right? That's true. Yeah. That's not mm-hmm. just, that's not just a, a myth. That's true. So if a startup with 10 programmers in it can blow Microsoft out of the water, you know, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> and you have to think, well, there's something wrong then with the way that the big companies are working. And they didn't always work that way as Microsoft was a small company once. I remember when it was a small company. And um, But they've changed over time in ways that have not been good. And it's very difficult once they do that to change back because there's no yeah. culture in place and they can't really change back. So the companies that have changed back successfully are the ones that have realized that and then broken themselves up into smaller companies. It's typically what they do is they 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 break off a chunk of the company and make a little small gunk works kind of project, right? A standalone division that is is separated from the politics and the control of the bigger corporation and just given the freedom to work actually work like a startup. And is that a voluntarily decision? Because I can imagine that people have to give up a certain amount of power that, that uh, you know, it's politics, I guess, but uh, I can imagine it sometimes it would be hard for some uh, It depends on the company. If you've got 200 people working from your, for you, losing five of them is not going to matter much. That's, that's true. Right. Yeah. And the, the, so you make this little tiny company and you could take pretty much everything you do and break it up into these little tiny companies and then just get rid of the main, the main thing. And um, so that's one way of working. The other way of working, which the little companies don't like, is that then those companies can be pulled back into the larger companies. That's, that's what happened with Sun and Java. And the people that JavaSoft was split off as a separate startup. 
And mm-hmm. the people who worked at JavaSoft thought they were working for a startup. And then when Sun pulled them back into SunSoft, they were really angry. It was because it was like they'd been lied to. Mm-hmm. They thought they were going to yeah. go be a startup, right? And it, it didn't work out that way. But you see that happening. But if they hadn't done that, Java would not exist. Yeah. The reason Java exists is because it was split off into a small, a small group of extremely good people who did just spectacularly good work. And they could not have done that in the context of Sunsoft. Sunsoft, Sunsoft was a mediocre software organization. Yeah, but like we, when you okay. say the infodemic split, then you also, do you mean that they should stay split forever? Because I think it's also quite common. At least I have experienced a lot of companies trying this transformation programs and doing like splitting small software organization. They can actually achieve something. And at the moment that they want to merge it back, everything goes back to normal. Everything goes to hell, yeah. I, I think they should stay split forever. That works for me. I there's there's um, W. L. Gore. You read about W. L. Gore is not how Gladwell talks about them in one of his books. I think it's Blink. I don't remember which book it is. But Gore has they they're focusing on Robin Dunbar's number for organizations, and there are several Dunbar's numbers. People who quote Dunbar's number don't they haven't actually read Dunbar, so they don't <laughs> they don't understand what he's talking about. But his number for large organizations is around 150 to 200. And you can argue about his methods is that he came to that conclusion by examining the simian brain and decided that the brain was just not able to have a social grouping larger than about 150. I don't know that I buy that. But practically speaking, once the group gets about bigger than about 150, it can't self-organize anymore. And if you can't self-organize, you, you lose all your agility. So at W.L. Yeah. Gore, um, there, there's only, you can only have 150 people in a building. And if the group wants to grow larger than that, they will literally build a different building for them and spin them off into a separate group. So W.L. Gore is a collection of small 150-person companies that work pretty much independently, but they align with each other. They they coordinate with each other so that they can um, satisfy a single strategic goal across the whole larger organization. But, you know, it works well for them. I don't see why it wouldn't work for everybody. It's the... No, I mean, if it works for them, it's good for them, right? I mean, we should try and see. Well, there's always that, right? It's it's one of the things that's true about agile things generally, right? Is the, which is something else that Scrum is is really wrong about, and something else that those big corporations don't get is the. There's this wonderful story that uh, Mary Poppendick talks about in one of her lean books about the Numi factory, and it was down in Fremont near me um, a few years ago. Um, it was the worst uh, automobile manufacturing facility on the planet, pretty much. Is they had the, <laughs> they had the highest okay. absentee rate, and lowest quality. It was just awful. Uh, it was a General Motors plant, and they brought in Toyota people and said, "Let's work collaboratively," which in practice meant, "Why don't you tell us what to do?" And mm-hmm. Toyota set up a lean manufacturing system in in that plant, which turned it into one of the best plants, automobile plants in the world. And the interesting thing is that General Motors comes along and they say, ooh, look how good they're doing. And they documented all of the processes that had been developed by the individual teams within mm-hmm. Numi, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a precept of lean that the people who are doing the work need to make the decisions. So the decisions about how they work is done at the team level. Teams decide how they work, which is part of Vagile too, but lean did it first. Yeah. And the so anyway, GM documented all these processes and then took the books of documentation back to Detroit and said to the people in Detroit, okay, you guys are going to do this now. And it was a complete, utter failure. 
just a spectacular yeah. failure. Of course. Right. Yeah. And it's because what was important was that the teams were coming up with their own processes, not what the processes were. So you look at Scrum, right? And Scrum is a process that Ken Schwaber's group, his team, came up with that worked well for them. Exactly. Yeah. But saying so we can just then take that process and plonk it down over here and it'll work fine, that that doesn't work. I'm sorry. <laughs> just no. because it worked for them doesn't mean it's yeah. gonna work for anybody else. I think and, that's the best explanation I ever heard why Scrum doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, so there you go, right? And the whole notion of self-organization is so central to agile thinking that the people who are doing the work are the people that are best able to make the decisions about everything, pretty much everything that impacts them at least. Um, yeah, and, and that is something that, that, um, you know, that I see at a lot of clients as well, where you say like, well, you know, the team should be able to make these decisions on their own, but then there's always, you know, that manager or, yeah, that, you know, product owner that says like, well, you know, we need to, uh, you know, this is the way things are. And we have, you know, these upper management people that need these numbers or whatever. And, uh, it's a very, very hard battle to fight sometimes. Well, but it comes back to the original problem, the key problem, which is that Scrum yeah. is being sold by these certificate mills yeah. as this thing you do in engineering, this thin veneer, right? We'll put this little this layer around engineering and you know what the people who are hiring those people here is so we'll call our project managers scrum masters. And yeah. <laughs> right and <laughs> so on and so forth. And we'll take people who are working for the product, the real product manager, and we will assign them to the, t the teams, right? Just one, one dysfunction yeah. after another. And they haven't, they don't make any real changes. They yeah. change a few people's titles. They have stand up yeah. meetings. Oh boy. And yeah. but they don't make any real changes. They don't change the culture. They don't change the way the organization works in any significant way. And I don't know why they expect there'd be any improvement if they do that, right? What do you get from that? If you're not making any real changes, how can you expect real changes? Yeah. And some uh, different namings and some different labels yeah. and that's it. Yeah. yeah. You know, and Scrum doesn't help though, because Scrum is itself so it's silent on these topics. The Scrum Guide is at least. No. Oh, and they don't emphasize that it's a huge radical change, right? It's not like extreme programming. You see the word extreme programming and you go, ooh, there's something radical here, right? It's Scrum. What does that mean? Right? It's just sort of this this empty gray corporate word that doesn't mean anything. It's like making, what was it? Oh, um, um, Survey Monkey, this monkey, just rename yeah. themselves mm -hmm. to some ridiculous gray, yeah, sorry, meaningless, made up corporate speak word that nobody can remember. It's like, what's that about? Right. But that's kind of what Scrum is in a sense, right? It's this, this kind of gray, faceless process that you can kind of ignore. Um, Momentive, that's it, right? Well, what a ridiculous name. Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. Survey Monkey, that's a great name, but Momentive. <laughs> <laughs> Would Survey Monkey ever have been successful if they had been called Momentive to begin with? Probably not. I don't know. <laughs> It'd be a different sales pitch, though. Yeah, it'd, be, yeah. it'd be different in many, many well, ways. So if, 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 let's say, I take away the idea of Scrum and Agile, right? Like, and I just go to company. I had this uh, conversation last week that kind of, you know, we obsessed me a little bit where the development team was discussing the delivery team. So it's a small company and they had two teams, right? One that implements on the customer, that interacts with the customer and the development team that just gets requests. And the developers was basically trying to follow your heuristics and basically say, well, I want to be more in contact with the customer. I want to see what they do. If I knew that they do this, I would have implemented this totally different. 
Where this other thing is like holding the ground, it's like, wow, it's not efficient if you guys come to us and go for us, see what the customer do. So it's better for us to get all the feedback, compile, remove all the crap and give it to you. And I hear there's a lot about uh, making those silos in name of efficiency. And it drives me quite nuts. Like, what is your view in that? Well, because it's not efficient. Right, it's that that, that's like why it, right? it's all nuts. Right, is that if you get it wrong, having to redo it is the opposite of efficient. Yeah. Right, is that the the only way to efficiently fix problems is to catch them early, because the the more time that elapses, the harder it is to fix. Especially if you have multiple teams working and their code is interacting, is that the rolling back a change in code that five teams or ten teams have been working on for a month, that's hard, and the the um. So this notion of it's more efficient somehow to collect, you know, to not talk to your customers, that's insanity because it's, it's just simply not. You can just measure stuff and see that it's not more efficient. Yeah. So it would only be more efficient if you didn't fix the problems, which is what happens. Right? The people that make that argument, they live in a world where they, they, they say it's more efficient and they distribute what they built and it's wrong and they don't fix it. Yeah. So what does that accomplish? That might be more quote efficient, but how is the efficiency benefit of the company? So you, for the what we have here is a separation of engineering think from business think. And in the Agile Manifesto, when they talk about business people and and developers working together, they actually mean together. And the idea is yeah. for people who are on the teams to start understanding what's how businesses work, and a business exists in order to make money and the basic philosophy is that the best way to do that is by uh, having happy customers yeah so if you are releasing stuff that isn't really doing good things right if it's wrong if it's bad stuff your the business will start failing is that the growth rate of the business will go down you'll start losing customers um eventually the whole system will fail and um people don't seem to see that there are a bunch of classic systems archetypes to use Peter Senge's word that are at play here that all lead to failure because they're not thinking about the system. They're just thinking about a small piece of the system. Systems thinking is really important. I, the, the, it is often ignored. People don't even study it. They, the odds of a programmer having read Peter Senge or, or Danella Meadows or any of the people that are talking about systems thinking are very small. Mm -hmm. Most programmers have never read yeah. those books. And, um, but it's really essential as agile is all about agile is a system yeah. and the entire organization is impacted. And if you don't know that you don't, you know, don't make it work, then the system will fail. And the system failing means the company goes belly up. Yeah, but I do agree that like say a lot of developers might not have read it those, but then wouldn't be the responsibility of the managers or executive actually to be aware of those rather than only per se the developer. You would think that, but they're not. You know, how many of them have even read Deming, or somebody that's not not even as, as abstract as, you know, Danelle Meadows was a, was a ecologist, so you have, you know, people can blow that book off by saying, well, what's that got to do with engineering? But the, the Deming was right in the middle of engineering, right? Automobile yeah. manufacturing, but engineering yeah. nonetheless, right? And yeah. people don't read Deming either, right? So people are remarkably ignorant in the profession and they don't read the things that they need to read but systems thinking if you it, once you get the kind of systems thinking bug in your head that's one of those things that like makes your head explode 
Yeah. Right. Where, where very you go, annoying. Whoa, I see the world in a completely different way than I did an hour ago. And it doesn't happen very often when it does happen. It's great though. Because I think it's great is that I, I, I remember reading my first book about systems thinking and actually not reading. I, it was, it was a Russ Acuff talk, a video that I saw of one of Russ Acuff's talks. And, but it changed the world for me it changed the way that i look at the world make you feel humble right well yeah <laughs> you know and the the um people so i've come to believe that systems are more important than just about anything to think in terms of the system and, and do you think uh it's 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 hard for them or maybe they're not motivated to 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 read up on systems thinking because um you know a lot of managers and and you know full teams even are always responsible like even that's a, I guess, a bit of a loaded word, but for a very small subset of like the total product, maybe. And then it's like, okay, I need to optimize this specific little thing here. Well, that's yeah, but that's my a, responsibilities. I don't know whether that's a symptom or a, or a, a root cause is the, right. the, um, certainly when the teams are encouraged to think that way, you're not mm -hmm. going to have an organization that is thinking in terms of systems. But right. then you could also argue that the reason teams are thinking that way is because you have an organization that's not thinking in terms of systems. It can go, go in both directions. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, the solution, like like with a lot of these things, comes in training, education. I really expose people to the concepts and then work with that. And, yeah. the, you know, I think it's that enough. I think that's so the reason why they, let's say, they call you and us when they are like deep shit, right? Is because you need some sort of like pain. If you are not in pain, your company is doing okay, and let's say everything can be broken, right? If you are in a good market, maybe you can survive for a few years. But Well, yeah, but again, that's a classic systems issue, right? Where you're in a good market and you continue to do things that you think work, but there's a time lag. It's one of the One of the key concepts in systems thinking is that people are not good at connecting cause and effect when there's time between the yeah, cause and the effect. And the longer the time, the less good they are at seeing the connection. And the sort of thing that you're talking about is a classic example of the of a time disconnect between cause and effect that causes people to not understand what the effect is. You know, so the the one of the examples in, I think it's in Senge's book, I'm pretty sure it's in Senge's book, is he's talking about um, a company that, Essentially, what happens is that it was a sales-driven organization, and they started out selling a product that was selling like hotcakes, and they were stunningly successful. And they they had a, a, a policy that the machines they were building, it was a hardware company, the machines they were building were sh would ship within eight weeks. And what happened is they were so successful that their uh, manufacturing couldn't keep up. So those lead times got longer and longer and longer. And the, what happened then is that sales went down because customers were disgruntled with the lead times. And they were sales-driven people, though. But they said, our sales are down. We have to increase our marketing budget. They did not increase their manufacturing budget. They increased their marketing budget because they couldn't right. see that long-term connection. So the marketing budget made sales go up again. Right There's another little hump there. But meanwhile, manufacturing is going down and the lead times are slipping, yeah. slipping and they lose even more customers. Yeah. And the whole thing just kind of collapsed after a while because they they never realized that the way that we, the only way we can succeed is to not sell things, 
right? Or to put it another way, when the sales cycle went down, that was the system accommodating the fact that production couldn't keep up, right? The system effect was that the limiting factor here is going to be the shipping rate because when you ship, when the lead time is too long, you lose customers. The losing customers was a good thing. It was bringing the number of customers down to the level where the current manufacturing system could keep up. Yeah. Then what you needed to do is raise both of them up in parallel, probably starting by increasing manufacturing capacity above what you thought you needed. Mm -hmm. And then you could sell. Then you could sell. And then you'd have a bunch of happy customers because they would be getting machines quickly. And then you have to keep the manufacturing slightly ahead of the sales numbers in order to make that work. But they didn't see that because of the time delay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, we see a lot of that in in software and agile and that sort of thing is that there might be an initial success, but repeating the thing that got you your initial success, in this case, repeating the sales side, Mm -hmm. doesn't help with long-term success at all. And in fact, if it's the wrong thing to be amplifying, it usually is, the long-term success odds will go down because you're you're looking at the wrong thing. You're you're putting effort into Mm -hmm. the wrong places. Yeah. Right. So yeah. you look at agile and uh, putting effort into working faster is a classic example of that. Right. Because at first it will seem to be doing good things. But in the long term, it won't. Right. Because you're not producing value. You're, you're going faster, but you're not producing value. And the only way to have the whole system ratchet itself up is if the value, the identification of value leads the faster part. So yeah. you guarantee that the people who are working are working on the most valuable thing. And if you're pushing on output on faster, then value goes out the window and you start losing customers. And yeah. often in an organization like that, the people who are in charge will say, so the problem is that we're still not fast enough. So we have to work faster still, right? And meanwhile, value is going down and down and down. And eventually the whole thing collapses. But couldn't you and, argue that if you have a lot of output, right? Like, let's say you can, I agree that let's say, putting a lot of features out not might be a good thing, but let's say you have the discipline to do a lot. Let's say Netflix now is releasing one move every week, right? There's a lot of output. Maybe a few of them are going to suck. Maybe one is going to succeed. This also shows that you can try quite a lot more than anybody else or not. Well, I suppose, I, you know, but again, that's a good I, thing as well, right? I mean, maybe I, I, I'm, I am firmly of the belief that it's better to produce high value slowly than it is to increase your output. I, I, I've hardly ever seen good things come out of output going up. Um, but on the other hand, a lot of people that I talk to, at least initially, believe that output going up is the most important thing. Right? Mm-hmm. When I when I go in as a consultant, again, I don't push this agile thing. I say, what business problems are you having? And almost always output comes up as the main business problem. We can't get stuff out the door fast enough. And the problem, the real problem is that the stuff that they're getting out the door has maybe a one to 10 or two to 10 value to, to volume ratio. In other words, the percentage of the stuff that they're pushing out the door that's actually valuable is relatively small. Yeah. And the other stuff they're pushing out the door is of low value, but they, they, if they're focused on output, they're not thinking. So they're saying, we, effectively what they're saying is we can increase the percent, we can increase the, the, actual amount, not the percentage, but the, the actual amount of valuable stuff by increasing output as a whole. And that's true, 
but it's not a very efficient way to work. No, of course. Right, is what you want to do is reduce output down yeah. to the point where you're only producing the valuable stuff. And then you have, then you can produce more value more quickly. But so getting people to stop thinking about output and to start thinking about value, that's often a hard sell. It's a hard problem because they're used yeah, to thinking. Because it also links to the organization itself. Yeah. And, and a lot of mistakes, right? It's, it ultimately comes down to thinking of software production as a kind of manufacturing as if we're building cars and it's not, yeah. right? It's we're doing something very different. Yeah. And um, they're applying car-like thinking. They're saying, if we can get the assembly line to move faster, we'll be more successful. And that's not the way that software works. So it's the wrong metaphor. Mm -hmm. the, the, a lot of that is the business school's problem, is that the business schools teach this garbage. right? They, they teach these manufacturing metaphors as being universal, when in fact they're not. And um, yeah, compared to the... building a... Oh, sorry, go ahead. This afternoon, I actually used the analogy of uh, creating a painting, actually painting, mm -hmm. as in a metaphor for what software engineer could be, and how to word, how to see it, how to look at it differently. That seemed to ring a bell. In yeah, jazz. that works. I like to use jazz as a metaphor. It's music. Yes, better. It is more Ooh, jazz, jazz is a great. A jazz ensemble is a great metaphor for an agile team. Ah, right? okay. They're they're listening closely to each other and then improvising based on what they're hearing. They're very agile. They can change the music changes on a dime because they're listening so closely. Um, nonetheless, they have a uniform set of values and so forth that contribute towards the music, right? Because they're, they're not. It's not like you have a classical musician and a rock musician and a jazz musician all trying to do this. They're all jazz musicians. They understand the metaphors. They understand the language of jazz, mm -hmm. and so they're all on the same page that way. They have the same underlying philosophies and stuff. But the music. The music is whatever it is, is there's no way to predict what it's going to be. Long, you can't do a long-term planning jazz ensemble. It doesn't work that way. And they're responding, better, this one. You know, they're responding right. to the market, if you will. They're, they're responding to what they hear, what they're hearing right now. Yeah. And they're also responding to the audience and responding to the, to the world around them as they're working. I, I, I think it's a great metaphor. I think it works way better yeah. than most of the other ones that you hear for, for Agile yeah. teams. And so, uh, so like... If uh, if I look at your heuristics, right, the thing that you say, and I think you agree quite a lot, without psychological safety, respect, and trust, none of this following is possible. So yeah. basically, I have these two, I guess, things in my head. Any organization you go, this is the two hardest thing. Having, let's say, a sponsor, manager, a boss, or whatever word leader you want to use, that is actually say, hey, we're going to try to change and adapt things here. And another one is create this environment of psychological safety. I think these are like the most impossible things. I don't know how do you experience that. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Like when they but ask you, know, you, do you they trust them? too, right? If you think about most corporations, pretty much everything they do is they do because they don't trust anybody. Yeah. Right? Is think about how hard it yeah. is to get permission to take a class in a big corporation. Yeah. So they don't mm -hmm. trust the person who wants to take the class with being good enough to know that they need to take a class, right? What's the, if somebody says, I need a class because I don't know somebody to do my work and a manager is arguing against that, what are they doing? Guy, I just told you, you can't do the work because he doesn't know something. And you're saying, so we're going to prevent you from learning the things that you need to learn in order to do the work? What's yeah, that about? Because I'm paying right? so, because you already know, you're supposed to know. 
yes. And the, the so it's all mistrust. It's all mistrust, right? Everything's mistrust, right? Is that you know, big corporation? Well, you're trusted to write the software that the company's life depends on, right? The software fails, and the company will fail. But we don't trust you to like go buy a pencil. Yeah. <laughs> right? The supply cabinet, you know, it's locked, and you've got to fill out a requisition, and you know. <laughs> It's odd. It's very, very odd. And the, the, um, so that's, you know, the psychological safety is not harder than trust. Yeah. Right. And the, the, and respect, right. Is that those are tied together, right. Is how much respect do you have for somebody if you don't trust them is the none yeah. basically. So, yeah. but those are all cultural things. And those culture in general has to start at the top. Um, I, I've, I've had discussions with people like Bob Martin about this is that they, they think it can start at the bottom and I don't buy that. Um, I, th I think it has to start at the top and work its way down. Um, and the, so the changes can happen if you get the right person in charge because they can make a change where trust in psychological safety and things like that are part of, part mm -hmm. of the company culture, right? If you have a CEO that says, I'm going to start dinging your salary if you don't tell me what you think. Right now, that's a kind of force that itself is not yeah. a safe approach, but it can at least get things started. Right, at least at least it can get things moving in the right direction. Where you you have you we need to set up a culture where people will speak. Yeah. Right, and if you have but, a system that's based on rewards and punishment, which is usually the case, that means yeah. you have to set up incentives. You have to set up rewards for people speaking. And you have to set up, um, up uh, you have to make it clear that if somebody's not speaking, that it's the team's problem and they need to solve that. They need to figure out what they're doing wrong in order to prevent people from speaking. But again, those directors are coming from above because otherwise there are going to be incentives in place to prevent that from happening. So if, yeah. you, if you have individual performance reviews with bonuses being parceled out based on those reviews, you are encouraging people to not collaborate. Because they're, you're, you're encouraging people to compete with each other because the bonus pool is fixed. It's a zero-sum problem. And you yep. get a bigger chunk than somebody else gets a smaller chunk. So people are competing but, with each Like, uh, do, do you say, for example, let's just hypothetically imagine we are all part of the same team. We all buy this agile thing and we all agree on this and we are on the bottom of the chain. Don't we think we could, as a team, play this and like, okay, we're going to change this organization. If the whole team is aware... We all forget about our own bonus. We are trying to do the best of the product. Do you think our organization would change from one small team? Maybe. You know, the team could say to the boss, this whole bonus thing is crazy, and you're just going to, from here on out, you're just going split it, to split it evenly between all of us. And in some organizations, the boss could do that, and in others, the boss will get in trouble for doing that. Where the boss's boss will say, this is insane. You can't reward everybody. We need to motivate the people who are the best best performers, right? And so, right, that wends its way up the hierarchy. Yeah. It's a point at which the hierarchy is going to push back yeah. if you don't have support from the top. Yeah. Right? So because people's jobs depend on doing what the hierarchy tells them to do. is The system is control, is in control. I think Deming said, given a, a conflict between a individual and the system, the system always wins. And I think that's true. And the, the, so you need to change the system. It gets us back to system thinking. And changing a system is very, very difficult. 
And um, well, go ahead. So we recently had a, a guest in our podcast, right? And he said the root of all this these issues is actually command and control. Well, that's a system too. Yeah. Right, and it's just not an appropriate system for software development. So you have to change your systems, and the, you know, you you don't have to. A lot of times, people talk about agile, and they say that's socialism, which is not true, but it's kind of a, but it's a systemic thing, right? Mm-hmm. You're saying we're going to move the focus onto individuals and interactions rather than processes and tools. That's what they mean by socialism, yeah. right? That you're putting focus on the individuals, and um, if that's your definition of socialism, that you pay people, you pay attention to people. Then I guess it is socialist, but that's not my, you know, I, I think I actually have red marks and that's not what he had in mind when he was talking about socialism. But yeah. the, the, um, the, uh, it, well, it gets back to systems, right? I, again, say it right. If your system isn't working, tweaking the pieces is not going to help, right? If your car is not moving, car is a system for moving people from point A to point B. Right. Well, none of the pieces of the system are independent. You can't just sit on an engine and move. Right. No. The engine's got to be in the car. And the the none of the pieces, if improved, can make the system go faster just by themselves. Right. The, because the pieces are not independent from one another. If you mm-hmm. if you bought the best possible engine that anybody made anywhere in the world and the best possible brakes that anybody made and the best possible body that anybody made. And you tried to put them together, you couldn't, they wouldn't fit. Mm-hmm. And even if they did fit, they probably wouldn't work. And so you can't bring in a 10 X programmer and that's not going to affect the system any. And the, yeah. the, and more to the point though, you change anything, you change the engine. You want to go faster. You give it a bigger engine. Okay. So we now need to beef up the drive chain. And we have to beef up the engine mounts. We have to beef up the way that the drivetrain attaches to the body, which means that we have to beef up the body. And then we have to start looking at the brakes because we can't stop the car if it's moving faster. By the time you're done, you've changed everything but the cigarette lighter. Yeah, the entire car. And yeah. the, the um, <clears throat> yeah. so these little tweaks, people want to do these little tweaks because they're not thinking about the big system. And little tweaks never help. Actually, Increasing the productivity of a team is not going to help. I, I, not learned, move I learned that when I was, I think, about 12 years old. And uh, at the time playing computer games, and then I remember the new game came out, and I was like, "Oh, doesn't work on my computer. I need a new video card. Oh, but doesn't work on my motherboard. I need a new motherboard. Oh, my memory also doesn't work. And then a new, no, I need a new like uh, I forgot English word for it. Soon I had a whole brand new computer that I cannot pay for. And then my father like, "Yeah, I'm not gonna get it." Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Yeah, I, I did find it interesting, though, with the with the psychology of safety to you know, circle a little bit back, uh, where you said that uh, you know it's good if it comes from the top, but don't you have the problem that uh, people will become complacent, maybe in in their in their team, and it's like, well, you know, I kind of have an opinion, but uh, you know, I won't mention it because the guys up top will will think for me. Won't that be like a negative side effect? Well, that's not what psychological safety is, but it's kind of really an orthogonal issue. Is that the the you're also talking about a hierarchy, sort of this patriarchal hierarchy, where the people on top mm-hmm. are the ones who do the thinking, and yeah. that's really a separate issue from safety. Though it's okay. not, it's not, it's not completely disconnected. But the point is, is that I was just talking about this on Twitter yesterday, right? It's the idea of juniors, 
Right. Somebody was saying, we invite the juniors into the meeting so they can learn from us. And that whole attitude just really is appalling to me. And it's a bit patronizing. It's patronizing. It? Yeah. It, and it's, yeah. and it's it, not only is it patronizing, it's ineffective, is that the, because those, quote, juniors could probably contribute a lot to that meeting, but because yep. they're put into this patronizing position, they are unwilling to speak. So that's, so that's a psychological safety problem, right? Is that yeah. we have a culture that is, that is making an unsafe environment for the juniors to speak. And yeah. right. So you've got to, you have to change that, but it's not really complacency. We're talking about here. It's power. It's the opposite of complacency saying the okay. people on top have power. So I will defer to them rather than bring up my own point of view. Yeah, um, <clears throat> that's a different. Yeah, but there's also a little bit right, of psychological safety. Like you don't want to express because you are afraid of the pushback. In a sense, like oh, if I say this to my manager, my manager is yeah. going to basically put me in another crap team or whatever. I mean, I have seen it happen. Yeah, but it's still power. It's still a power hierarchy. Yeah. In the way. Right. The only way to get psychological safety in, in an organization is for people to give up power. Right. Because ultimately, okay. that's what it's about. It goes back far enough. Right. Somebody's got to be able to say, I'm no longer the most powerful person in the room. And the other people who are in the room can contribute. And um, it's a big change yeah. at pretty much every level. I'm the, I think you're right to say that getting psychological safety in an organization is not easy. But that doesn't make it any less necessary. Yeah, right. And there certainly have been some very large organizations that have taken psychological safety very seriously and done good things. Look at the Mayo Clinic. Right, is that the Mayo Clinic is not a small organization, but they took psychological safety really seriously and ended up with much better outcomes. Right, is that the, the patient outcomes are better than they are almost anywhere else in the country, any other hospital in the country. And it's because okay. they, at the upper levels, said, okay, this is real. Right, but the things that Amy Evanson are describing here are real and it's impacting our, our real purpose it's a, you know, i hate to use the word vision but you know is that the people on top took them the the um, um and my mind is going blank here the process of the company helping people no, the, the, the idea yeah helping people the reason the, the company existed is yeah. to help people mm. is to get them healthier that's why they existed and the people at the top saying, well, you know, the way we're working now is working against that. We're not getting people healthier because we don't have a safe environment. So we're not doing things that we could otherwise be doing. We're not leveraging the brains of everybody that could be contributing to this. And they, they got serious about making a change. And, um, you know, maybe it was easier there because it was doctors. I doubt that. I, I don't know. I wasn't there. But it still involves giving up some power, right? Is the doctor has power yeah. over the nurses. Yeah. For a doctor to say, you, your, to say to the nurses, your input is important, and mm -hmm. I will change the way I'm behaving based on your input. Um, that's a hard thing for a doctor who is in this position of power and authority to do. Yeah. And um, you know, and what makes it work though is that shared purpose, to use Dan Fink's term, right? Is it the purpose? Yeah of the organization was to make people healthier and everybody shared that purpose. Like, have you experienced and, that? And we're willing to say, okay, I can, I don't like this, but I can understand how it's not helping with the larger goal of making our patients healthier. Yeah, I, I do like this story, but it sounds sometimes to me also when I read those books a little bit, when a doctor, right? Like I haven't seen 
this change of heart in my life, like in a manager, in a boss, in a CEO, whatever, that is actually day one to, oh, this is not in the, like, have you seen it yourself? Um, I have seen it, but it's not, it's not um, common, it's rare. And I, more often than not, it's much easier to start out thinking about things in what I think of as, as an effective way than it is to try to change what you're doing to become more effective. I think uh, Ricardo Semler said the same. You really have to have people who are willing to put up with the disruption. And you do see it, right? As you look at uh, um, um, ANZ Bank, which has its own problems, but they made a whole bunch of changes that were good in the right direction. Um, okay. You know, there are big organizations that can do it. But you look at some very agile, large-ish companies like, say, Salesforce, and they pretty much always started out with a culture that was a good culture. And as a startup, and then as they grew, they maintained the culture. So the difficulty yeah. there was maintaining that culture as they were growing. Yeah. Yeah. And they pulled that off because Mark um, Benoff was pushing on it all the time. Right. And the, the uh, so it took somebody on top <laughs> kind of making things go in the right direction to make that work. But it, the companies companies can change. It just depends on how much will they have to do that. And usually in most very large companies, the system rules and nobody, no one person can change it. So they're just stuck. Um, I think there's a point above which you can't make the changes just in terms of size and stuff, which is agile is never going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. But again, those companies could break up into smaller companies. If the person on top really thought that it was important, there's no reason why they can't do that, but they won't, right? Is that the, the yeah. because the system is pushing towards the towards its own perpetuation? So I've yeah. the, the, I, safe is a classic example of that. A safe is anti-agile. You want to go back? Cool. We brought it up. Something the big corporations like though, because it lets them keep doing what they're doing now and pretend that they're agile. Okay. And um, but the so that's what happens when you have a big system that won't budge is that they start then perverting things like Agile in order to be acceptable to the system. And when you do that, you've changed it, of course, to the point where it's unrecognizable from what it originally was, mm -hmm. because the system is now in control of the process design rather than the, than the people. But, um, yeah. You know. Yeah. Years ago, we talked to a, a safe uh, evangelist, I guess the name would be. Um, and then we asked him, like, why are you pushing this? Because it seemed a little bit insane to us, this whole safe <laughs> yeah. uh, business. Yeah. And his literal answer was like, well, management likes it and it makes a lot of makes money. A lot of like that was yeah. the literal only reason. <laughs> because it does, it lets them put that agile thing. Right? Yeah. That I hear, I hear um, every so often there's a ad runs in the local radio stations for Walmart, Walmart, which is, <laughs> you know, I don't know if you know them, but Walmart is this giant yeah. retailer yeah. in the US, right? And they're the least agile place on the planet. And, but they use the word agile in their advertisements. You know, they're trying to recruit people and say, you know, come join us oh. at Walmart. We are an agile software developer. And that's nonsense, right? But if they're doing something like safe, I don't know if Walmart is doing safe or not, but if they're doing safe, that gives them the rights to use the big A agile label, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right? <laughs> I also read something quite interesting about Walmart because in a way I could consider them agile, not in software, but like uh, I think the strategy is that uh, they don't really pay well. They don't really take care of their employees. So they have a turnover of 40%. So they hire about 1 million people every year to work for them. And I'm like, man, that's an expensive strategy, but somehow that's pays expensive. Off. I don't think it does pay off. Yeah, I think it's really expensive and I don't think it does pay off. I think they have a, 
the reason that Walmart can succeed is they are so big that they can afford to be ineffective and inefficient. But if you get big enough, inefficiency is permitted. It works, right? Because yeah. it's all about percentages. And if you're big enough, if you can be like one half of 1% ahead of going out under, you're successful. Yeah. Right. That's billions of dollars to them given exactly. their overall value, right? So they're yeah. not really motivated to improve because they're making enough. Now they could make a lot more. Yeah. But that they don't but again the system is dominating there. And the system there is what Wall himself has put in place is that the the um it's the it's reflecting the beliefs and and philosophy of the people that founded the company, and that's not gonna change anytime soon. So there you are. Me and my brother, we took a, a road trip to uh, to the west coast of the U.S. a couple of years ago, and we also uh, visited a few WalMarts. And um, at one time, we wanted to buy like a six pack of Bud Light. I think it was. <laughs> <Beer? Yeah. laughs> well, you know, when in Rome, right? <laughs> yeah. You got to, you know, you got to get with the culture. But uh, <laughs> so we, we we went in line like uh, at one of the cashiers, and then she she told us, hey, you, "You guys can't uh, you guys can't buy this stuff here from me because I'm underage and I'm I'm not allowed to sell you this stuff." And then I, w I was like really confused, like you're not selling me this stuff. Walmart is right, like so. But I guess it's more of a like a, a law thing than than Walmart's own decision. But it, it felt really weird to, to me at least. It was a weird experience. Well, the weird, yeah, but the weirder thing is that you were allowed to get to the front of that line with a six pack of beer. <laughs> really? Well, what's wrong with their system? Right. They, they, they have, they have made you unhappy. If there was a long line, you had yeah. to wait for 10 minutes to get to the front of that line. Only to be yeah. told that you have to mm -hmm. buy it over there. You have to go get in yeah. that other line in order to do that. That's not, that's yeah. not good. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. And yeah. somebody, if that happened to uh, people often enough, they would stop going to Walmart because they yeah. don't want to put up with that. And the, you know, it's not working to their advantage. But again, there's the system. Is why wasn't there a system in place to route people to the correct lines? Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Maybe it's uh, maybe uh, locals know know it because I'm a dumb tourist, I guess. That's so. not much of a system <laughs> that you just. Kind of That's know true. It. <laughs> yeah. That's true. You just have to know <laughs> it. <laughs> All right. Cool. So uh, yeah, I think. I mean, uh, we could talk for a couple of more hours, yeah. uh, but I don't know if you guys. Uh, have a lot more questions for 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 Alan. Uh, I think I have one more. Is about well, like basically, if you have to give a tip, right? Like if I hear this conversation we just had, uh, and when a developer listen to this episode, I'm like, damn, I'm very sad right now. So basically, I don't <laughs> see a hope for me in this company. You're doomed. You're doomed. This all doesn't work. Exactly. This scrum thing doesn't work. What yeah. the hell should I do? Well, the pat answer is either change your company or change your company. But, uh, you know, that's not a realistic answer for most of us. So I, I can't really say that. But uh, if you're working somewhere where you're not happy, that's a problem. And yep. the only options we have then are really are to go elsewhere or to make the world around you one in which you can be happier. So if you can make small changes that help, great. I see nothing wrong with that. You know, it'll be it, it. It may not improve the overall effectiveness of the company, but down at the team level, who cares? Is that you? You know, it's the as long as the team itself is a good team and it's working effectively, then yep. there there's nothing wrong with that. I don't see any problem there at all. Yeah. It's the, you know, make your life a little better, and uh, if you can make your life a little better by doing agile kinds of things, that's great. And if you're bumping up against the system, 
which is preventing you from doing things. Mm-hmm. You just have to develop this attitude of, oh, well, it's not my responsibility to make the company better. If the company's not interested in getting better, then it's not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to change that. Mm-hmm. So would you uh, be able to do that? A lot of people do that every day is that they yeah, but- you know they have retrospectives or whatever and they make these little tiny improvements and they're happier as a team but the big things when a big thing comes up they say well we can't do that and if you can do the problem is if you could do that but don't know it yeah right but if you really can't do that if it really is not possible well, then you don't have any choice. You just have to accept that. So if you're not willing to accept that moving is going to be your only option. Um, you know, you can, and if you're convinced that you're, one of the sort of interesting things here is that if you're convinced that you're going to just leave, you suddenly, that suddenly gives you a lot of freedom that you didn't yes. know you have. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. can like march into the CEO's office and tell them off. And interestingly, sometimes the CEO goes, that's really interesting. I never thought about that. And the change happens. So, uh, so my general team, when I come into a place as a consultant, is that I don't care if I get fired or not. If you have that attitude, then that gives you a lot of freedom. Yeah. And uh, so if you can get into a position where you don't care, if you can save up enough money that you can find another job without having to having to struggle. And certainly in today's programmer in programming environment, finding another programming job is easier and easier. Um, especially given the the emphasis on remote, um, yeah. yeah, that gives you a lot of freedom. To just, so, what's holding you back then is you, right? It's not being willing to speak up, not will be willing to say this is doing damage. What we're doing here is doing damage, and it's doing so much damage that I am so unhappy that I'm going to leave. But it doesn't seem right to me to just leave without telling you why I'm leaving. So I'm going to have this conversation, yeah. and right. um, probably you don't want to not leave. <laughs> Unless the CEO goes, oh, my God, that's just, I never thought about that. I'll put you in charge, right? But the, <laughs> that's not going to happen. That's but, not fast. If the changes happen, they're going to take a long time to happen, and you are going to be unhappy for that time. So maybe leaving is still the right choice. But at least you can yeah. say something, right? So we're getting you learn through. something. Yeah, learn something. Yeah. So, yeah. But um, most companies are not that bad. They're bad, but they're not that bad, as you can survive. You like the people that you work with. The things work well enough. You can improve gradually. And I am taking agile thinking and agile processes and using them to make local changes in the team. That's a good thing. I see nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But I believe strongly that it's not going to help the overall organization get better if you do that. Yeah. Because it's our system, the engine in the system problem. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, I think uh, on that note, I guess we can uh, close off today's episode. Uh, Alan, I want to thank you very much for. Finding some time in your schedule to join us here in uh, the studio. You're welcome. Hope you had a good time. Yeah, it's fun. All right, nice. Uh, yeah, so if you have any questions for uh, for Alan, you can, uh, oh, of course, reach him on uh, Twitter. Uh, we'll put uh, the link in below. Uh, we'll put uh, the links to his websites and, uh, well, his books, as we haven't even talked about his <laughs> books, but uh, maybe in a future episode. I don't know. I have, well, I have uh, an, I'll have a new one shortly. As O'Reilly just contracted me to do a do a oh. new book. I haven't written a book in years, so I'm going to be doing a okay. know, incremental architecture book for O'Reilly shortly. So, all right. And cool. Well, maybe we can have a, another episode when that's uh, released and we can talk about your book. Maybe. There you go. Perfect. Would be nice. All right. Uh, yeah. I want to also, of course, thank uh, the co-host as well. And he can Sylvester. 
Thank, Thank you guys for being here. Thanks a lot. Thank you, uh, Alan. And, uh, I have to say that was very inspiring. And uh, I'm closing this conversation with lots of to uh, think about. Oh, good. I'm always happy when we think about stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And I also want to thank the listener, of course, right? Uh, If you guys have any other questions for us, maybe, then uh, you know where to reach us. us. That's uh, forscouts, uh, uh, sorry, twitter.com slash forscouts, or you can reach us at uh, podcast at forscouts.nl. Send us a message on anchor.fm slash forscouts, and then we can play it back here on the podcast. Uh, Yeah, so uh, feel free to reach out. Thank you again. See you next time. Bye-bye.